By downloading or listening to this podcast, you are agreeing to Moody's legal terms and conditions found at moody's.com slash disclaimer, including that the information provided is not investment or financial advice, and that Moody's will not be liable for losses arising from your use of the information. Welcome to Moody's Talks, KYC Decoded. I'm your host, Alex Pillow, and this episode is presented by Moody's Analytics. A quick disclaimer. By downloading or listening to this podcast, you are agreeing that the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the policies, views or positions of Moody's Corporation and its affiliates. Integrity, transparency and the fight against corruption have to be part of the culture. They have to be thought of as fundamental values said Angel Greer, the OECD Secretary General. Globalisation, COVID, the war in Ukraine and the sanctions from it, it's pretty easy to conclude that over the last couple of years there has never been more complexity, uncertainty and risk of corruption in supply chains. But how do risk managers and supply chain professionals, in collaboration with compliance teams, manage these risks? What are the attack vectors they need to defend against And how can they take the right tools and fight back against those not interested in free and fair commerce? I'm genuinely delighted today to have been able to make the trip to New York and sit down with two esteemed guests. First, Bill Hauserman. Bill has worked in compliance and ethics solutions for more than 20 years and currently leads the America's anti-financial crime industry practice team at Moody's Analytics. Bill was recognised for his career achievements in 2021 when the A-Team Group recognised him as the best data management vendor professional with an Editor's Award. Second, Richard Bizstrong. Richard spent much of his career as an international sales executive and currently consults and speaks on foreign bribery and the ethics and compliance issues that can arise from that frontline perspective. Sales to bribery, you might ask? Well, in 2007, Richard was targeted by the US Department of Justice in part due to an investigation of a UN supply contract. In that same year, as part of a cooperation agreement with the DOJ, and with a subsequent immunity from prosecution in the United Kingdom, Richard assisted the United States, Great Britain, and other governments in their understanding of how FCPA bribery and other export violations occurred and operated in international sales. Richard's cooperation, which spanned five years, was one of the longest in white-collar criminal investigation history. In 2012, Richard was sentenced as part of his own plea agreement and served 14 and a half months at a federal prison camp. Richard was released in December 2013. Since serving his sentence, Richard has dedicated himself and his career to raising awareness of the risk of corruption and educating companies of all sizes on how to ensure they keep their ethics and integrity and fight back against illicit actors seeking to corrupt the system. Bill, Richard. Thank you so much for coming in here in Seven World Trade Center, New York. How are you? It's fine. Thank you. Weathering the storm. Yes. Snow did come down yesterday, didn't it? And, and Richard, you, the trains managed to run on time almost, I think. They did, Alex. I just made it. And thank you both so much for the opportunity to join you today. Snow notwithstanding. I know a few weeks ago we, we got online while, when I was in London and we talked around like, hey, do we want to have a discussion? And we were thinking about focusing on corruption in particular. But then we actually started to think about what about broader, just third party risk and 
this bigger theme that everyone's trying to manage in today's world. And so I just wanted to start, Richard, with yourself, if I may. Like, when I say third-party risk, what, what does that mean to you? Sort of, what is the gamut or what's the spread of the gamut there? I think there is an instinct to think of third-party risk on the client side, mm. whether it be a distributor, a reseller, an intermediary. But I also think just as equally, we need to, especially in this current economic environment, we need to be thinking about the vendor side as well. Not just who we're selling to, but who we're purchasing from. Yeah, so those suppliers as well as the customers. And I suppose there's a few bits in between as well, like agents, intermediaries. Sort of, do you think about how to do things on those differently when you're thinking about the third party risk? Or is it, it kind of doesn't matter the type? You just need to be aware of all your stakeholders. I think that's a great point. And, and I often refer to third party risk as interaction risk. Right. Right. Okay. So who are you interacting with? That could be, in some industries, a key opinion leader. Mm. It could be a public official, uh, but it could also be someone in logistics, in shipping, mm. or then we think of our traditional vendors, our clients, and then those third parties, mm. intermediaries that come in between. Yeah, absolutely. And Bill, maybe we don't go too far on this, but you talk about third there's also the fourth parties, which I know that we've been thinking about. Nine, fifth and sixth and yeah. seventh. The, and the end here, as uh, some people call it. Yeah, it, it's interesting the way Richard framed that because um, 10 years ago, we looked at a type of interaction and one risk. Mm. Today, it could be six risks. It could be 10 risks. And so that People's mindsets have to understand that it's not like it was before. Everything's moved so fast. And yeah. I'm, I'm sure we'll explore a lot of that today. But it's, when you say third party, it's multiplied by X number of risks per third party that didn't exist even three to five years ago. That's because of technology and, and information that's become available. And also the reality that the, the bad guys know Many times, much better than us. How to get around? Um, how to get around the controls? Yeah, I, mean, I don't think it's the theme today, but we obviously spend a lot of time you and I, Bill, looking at very complex ownership networks with some of what we, we do in it. Yeah, as you say, those networks can can get pretty interesting, and there's a multiples or mul a factor you have to apply when we're thinking about a risk. We did start our conversation a few weeks ago about corruption. So specifically, when we talk about corruption, if I start with you, Richard, is there a way that that typically comes about? Like, why does corruption happen in, in your, your opinion, your experience? Well, I believe it was the World Economic Forum that put out an estimate that 3% of global production is being siphoned off to bribery and corruption. So we know that the demand side is very robust. Mm. So it's a question of what kind of culture do organizations have? What types of controls do they have so that the people and the teams that are tasked to work in these environments where we know there is a great deal or even not that corruption, it doesn't always have to be big corruption risk, but there's any corruption risk, mm. which I think is, is a global challenge. How do we task them so they don't feel like they are in the middle of competing corporate objectives? between the pressure to succeed and the pressure to comply. 
Yeah, yeah. Because we know that the demand is there. And and pivoting on your earlier point, Alex, this this is not a one size fits all problem or solution. So my experience as former commercial Richard mm. with corruption risk in South America, for example, that was very transactional. Mm. It was here's what you're going to need to pay if you want this contract. Here's what you're going to have to pay if you want it inspected, your mm-hmm. goods inspected. And here are the bribes that you're going to need to pay to get them cleared from customs. Whereas in the Middle East, it was much more complex. And your discussion on beneficial ownership came to mind because sometimes in the Middle East, the corruption risk that I encountered is how do we know who we're even doing business with? How can we make sure that our intermediary isn't the relative of a public official involved in a particular transaction. Yeah. Well, I think me and Bill are just nodding along for those uh, <laughs> that obviously aren't in the room and can only hear the audio. I think a lot of that, that rings true. Maybe if I expand on the question a little bit, you talked there around sort of almost in your experience in one part of the world, it's almost like a, there's a price list. It's kind of organized. You're just buying what you need to a certain extent when it comes to this, whereas a lot more vagaries in other parts of the world. These bad actors, for lack of a better term, like if we just use that title to encounter to uh, encapsulate anyone that is trying to corrupt a system or a supply chain in the, in this particular example. What are the attack vectors for them? I think by that, I mean, like, where would they target specifically an organization that might have all the policies and the, the intent to do the right thing? But if they're going to try and break that, where will they try to attack? So I th- that's a stubborn and a good question. Mm. And I think part of the challenge and where there might be a gap for that attack is a lot of, in my experience, both then and now, is there is no shortage of third parties that want to partner with global multinationals. Yeah. Right. They're not making any money unless they're part of this global economic ecosystem. Right. But put paperwork in front of them where they have to attest that they will abide by international anti-corruption laws, anti-money laundering laws, even if they don't take those seriously, Mm. which many do not across the world, they will still sign that paperwork that they will abide by those laws, even if they don't take them seriously, or maybe because they don't take them seriously. So I think part of maybe this gap that allows for third parties to take advantage of these loopholes, so to speak, is that you can't paper over risk. Mm. And having third parties sign contracts, that's not an off-ramp for responsibility and deeper due diligence. So, yeah, you can have the processes, you can have the intent and say, look, we've got this policy, but that doesn't mean you shouldn't be looking at your organization and say, if I was a bad actor, who would I go to? Which departments would I target for, you know, to try to corrupt? You've, you've actually then got to put something else in place beyond just the yeah, statement that you won't. Is that a fair summary of what? It, it yeah. is. Having a distribution model or an intermediary model does not transfer risk. Yeah. So I think that these self-attestations can lead to a very dangerous sense of complacency that, oh, our partners have signed this paperwork. You know, it's a one and done exercise and, and now we can go ahead and feel comfortable doing business with them. 
Yeah. And now, and it's so interesting that if you look at regulations in the past, particularly around bribery and, and the big ones, the FCPA, um, UK Bribery Act, et cetera, they started years ago with certification. You have to do certifications. I mean, when I made the switch from building due diligence management systems to the data side, it was because I said, those are useless. Self-disclosures are useless for, the, for those who really want to perpetrate a crime. Yeah. They are going to look squeaky clean. And if that's the, the, the degree in which you do the actual review, today the regulations say, we will come after you. If you just take their uh, word, and that's that's really where the flip has happened, is no matter what is disclosed, you have to assume it's false and you have to verify that it's true. Yeah. And that's that's a whole different world and has completely stumped a lot of different kinds of due diligence because the amount of information needed to do that is so fast. Yeah. Bill, let me, let me, let's stay on that theme. So in your experience, you mentioned many companies might be struggling with this, but what are the best companies doing to mitigate that, these third party risks and, and especially, you know, bad actors that are trying to corrupt their, their intent? They're realizing people in and of themselves can't do this. It's a triangulation of expertise in things like investigations, knowing what to ask and the order to ask it to try to stump the offender. But then it's, you've got to layer that with definitely better information, more what I would call structured plus unstructured information, information which has actually been curated versus information which is freeform and real, like a social connection. If you find a social connection between two people that own, you know, each owns a, a bunch of a company, the two together could collaborate and, yeah. and control it. Those are the kinds of things that you have to look beyond what you used to, to do. Yeah. And I think that's what people are struggling with is you can't do it. You can't throw bodies at it any longer. You've got to throw, yes, technology, but you've got to throw just better information. So, that means more sources. Yeah. So high quality expertise rather than mums in seats. Exactly. Technology that allows those people to scale their expertise and then the data to actually find these gaps. If we sort of, that's the triangulation you're talking about. Exactly. Because it hasn't, we've tipped over what is consumable in exactly the way that you would try to find this, the look squeaky clean, but it is in fact uh, a front of 10 companies that is connected to a criminal network Mm. because they want the front to look as squeaky clean as possible. If that's as far as you go, you know, we were talking about fourth parties, fifth parties, sixth parties. Yeah. That's where we fail today because companies are checking the box too early in the process. So culturally, they have to want to really impact uh, money laundering and and corruption. Yeah. For for even those companies that have the best of intentions, but where local data, national registries, might be suspect at best, how are they going to deploy the best resources to try to find out who they're doing business with when those local resources on themselves are not a satisfactory source of data? 
they, I think that's where we have tipped over that even the bad guys don't know how much we know about them. But it doesn't mean we can actually act on it because you have to put so many pieces together to figure out where the criminality starts and where the squeaky clean ends. That's what's really been um, the biggest problem we've got today. So what I see is that if we can get the the process to be human interrupted versus human controlled, use automation to get it to a certain point, but always have human driven um, steps in between. So it's putting people into the loop at the right time. As soon as companies have started doing that, all of a sudden that brain power of the investigators is now getting looking at information that has been distilled. And all of a sudden, you put a smart investigator with a much more distilled set of information, not a billion pieces of information, but 20, 30. It's amazing the difference. And that's what I don't think most companies have made that switch. Certainly, the regulated ones, the oil and gas, the pharmaceuticals, they've been making that switch. But even they have had a tough time because think how many different kinds of third parties they're now working with and where they're working with them. That's that's the that's mind boggling sometimes when you think about the connections and, and the scope. Speaking of social connections, don't underestimate the power of LinkedIn when you're looking at your third parties. Mm. So, you know, I come from the, the defense field. If I'm looking at a potential third party on the buying side or the selling side, and I look up that person on LinkedIn and I see that they have no defense connections or that they're involved in furniture manufacturing and distribution. I mean, that's publicly sourced data. That's yeah. there right at your fingertips. Yeah. Well, I mean, you start with, we talk about checking the box and talk quite negatively about tick box compliance a lot on this podcast and any conversations I have. I suppose there is still a place in terms of you follow, to your point, Bill, you follow, use automation data to get those processes automated because then it allows the investigators to do what you're doing, Richard, which is really the OSINT research, the open source investigations. And with the right tech, that becomes not easy. I, sh- I think it's probably worth stressing. It's like people might be listening going, how on earth would I do all this? And it's like, well, it is really hard, but anything worth doing is hard to do. So you might as well try. And it might be that you start by sorting out your automation or you sorting out some of your data or you sort out some of your training culture etc. But like, this is an end, well, not an end goal. You'll get there and there'll be a new end goal once you get there. But yeah, I mean, I was going to ask, you know, we've sort of covered it anyway, like over the years, how has corporate due diligence changed? But I think you've kind of covered it in, in what you've mentioned, Bill. Richard, if I could ask you though, you've been on both sides, as we know, right? So you're on the sales side and you sort of lived a corruption story. Could you maybe reflect on how sort of the approach or the attitude towards due diligence was at that time? And perhaps how you've noted, like maybe a change in perspective, if at all, up to present day. Well, Alex, now you're making me date myself. So the <laughs> ten years of my international experience was 1997 through 2007. Mm. So our world of anti-corruption and due diligence changed dramatically just over those ten years. Not to mention the period after. But what I saw during that decade was the haphazard use of due diligence. So what I would see is if there was a particular transaction in a high-risk region, 
with a high transaction value and a high risk third party, then I would see red flag due diligence Mm. occur. But here's the thing. If you look at my own plea agreement and my own experience, just as an example, one of the bribery conspiracies I was convicted of was bribing a Dutch police officer in the Netherlands. Now, in our anti-corruption world, the Netherlands rates as one of the least corrupt, most transparent countries in the world with great governance. Mm. And the amount of the bribe was $15,000 over a $3 million contract. So I think this pertains to our challenge now that just because a transaction takes place in a low-risk region with a low transaction amount doesn't mean that you don't have AML risk. It doesn't mean that you don't have anti-corruption risk. Mm. So I think now organizations are starting to get that, and it's less of a we're only going to flag things that we know are at the highest risk level. But I think the least common denominator is starting to now match a lot better what the global risk profile is. Yeah, It's so true that there was a complete disconnect in the past between what you're like a billion dollar facility and a reactor or a hospital or whatever. And then the, the ways the bribes happened and the percentages were, were minor, but we spent law enforcement spent forever on the $15,000 roll ahead to today. If you have $50 million to, to launder, you're going to do that in thousand dollar pieces all day long yeah. with, with automation. I mean, it's a whole different world but, in terms of how this all works. I think this, you almost brought this up earlier, Bill, but maybe we can talk about it with more clarity is that the bad guys are smart, right? Like they're doing this professionally. They're not going, Oh, how yeah. can I just get it through in one? They have so, data scientists. And they'll just go, like we oh, do. if everyone's taking this approach to only really looking at the high risk stuff, or they're used to perhaps, um, you know, a decade or so ago, then what they're going to do is put it through low risk or low rated jurisdictions. Yeah. And they're going to find ways that won't come up on a classic risk assessment scheme, which is why it's important to have your own and know why it's unique to you. Yeah. I've, I've got a question for you, Richard, on that, this whole topic of, to me, there's two kinds of culture. There's true culture that is regional, typically uh, a series of, I'll call them routines or almost, you know, I mean, for millennia, paying homages to leadership was how you, that was, that was accepted. That was known. And then there's culture of organizations. And in your role of trying to create environments that are much more in tuned with actually helping to solve the problem versus just checking the box. Those two cultures are still at odds. So you have, you, you have true cultures where you're not going to tell them not to, to do some type of homage, um, let's call it gifts, whatever we want to call it, and by definition, political figures are involved. To me, that's not necessarily where our problem is, and yet we chastise those events the same way we chastise companies who culturally don't do anything more than check the box. I mean, with those two cultures in play, 
I don't know how we actually resolve this problem. So that's where people can feel like they're in a wind tunnel with respect to what everyone else is doing. Yeah. When their organization is saying, these are our rules, these are our codes, these are our values, and we're putting you in a region and we're going to give you an aggressive set of commercial objectives. Now you go figure it out. I think the more nuanced organizations and the smarter ones are the ones that have an open feedback loop where they, they get that feedback from the field and they share this is what's going on competitively, mm. right? I want to live my corporate and personal values, but I don't want to put it, I don't want that to put me at a competitive disadvantage. So help me understand how this is going to work. And what I think we have seen is that if organizations are more patient with when they expect a return on their investment, because as you have both been sharing, if you're willing to invest to know who you're doing business with, we can do ethical and sustainable business in countries that we might think have a bad brand with respect to risk. But there's still a way to navigate that if you're using all of those tools. But that takes time and that takes investment. There's an element there, I suppose, of we're talking about how culture can impact due diligence processes and potentially commercial processes, but also we should think about how does culture affect strategy? So from your board and exec team down, like would they be willing to look at an open feedback loop? And if the guys are coming back and saying, all we're being told is we, we're not going to be able to do any business unless we you know, go, go the bad way, are you willing to pull out? Are you willing to say, well, that's not business we want to do? And we're, therefore, we're not going to focus resources on that particular market, that particular region, that particular segment. Like, no one's going to come out and say this, right? So I'm just speculating, but I think that that would be a fair thing to talk about. If we're going to talk about third-party risk, we're going to talk about culture, we're going to talk about process, we're going to talk about doing the right thing. You've also got to think about what business are you not willing to do once you've figured out who you're doing business with. Yeah, and that's the culture issue is it takes courage for a CEO to say, sorry, shareholders, we're not going to get that percentage. We're going to get it but we're not going to get it in three years. We're going to get it in five years or six years. So we lower that. It's, it's human nature. If I'm told I can make a ton of money doing it this way in three years, I'll do it whatever way it can be done. And if part of it's illegal, so be it. Cause that's my, my competitors are doing that. I think that's why these conversations are important. And I mean, Richard, how, how do you reflect on that? Cause I think again, you've, you've had a lived experience and you've now spent a lot of, time and your energy on trying to help others think about both angles. So yeah, love to just hear your thoughts and go as far as you want. <laughs> well, you, you both have brought up great points in that this is a leadership discussion. This is not a compliance discussion. Yeah. If, if a pharmaceutical company is getting ready to launch a new product that just received regulatory approval in a very high risk country, how are they going to get there? Compliance isn't going to lay out a market roadmap. That's a conversation at the C-suite. That's a, that might even be a conversation at the board level. And because when I think about this entire enterprise, and when we think about what is the role of ethics and compliance, I like to define it as to give leadership 
a balanced mindset when it comes to risk and innovation. Because we know as companies grow and they look at emerging markets, not just stable ones, values are going to get challenged. And it really takes a leadership mentality that just doesn't think about risk, but that also thinks about responsibility, mm. right? And when they, when they have that, there might even be some friction, right? There might even be some pushback between control function leaders and business leaders about a particular policy in an area or, you know, flagging a transaction. But that's good because if your business leaders are pushing back and are asking questions and are having a little bit of friction with their compliance peers, it means that everybody's taking it seriously. And it means that the ownership is not just through the voice of compliance, but it's also through the voice of leadership. And that's where it sounds so much louder. Yeah. That, that word friction, I think is a key one in a KYC onboarding. We talk a lot about what is healthy friction. Everyone wants this, you know, seamless onboarding experience, but actually having a, what we call healthy friction can be really good because it can discourage fraud, which ultimately affects your bottom line, as well as protect you from anti-money laundering and other things. In the case of third parties and multinational supply chains, which I think we're more focused on today, you do want a level of friction because it might actually help you weed out bad suppliers, bad third parties, fourth parties, fifth parties, so on. And a question I wanted to ask, maybe Bill, if I start with you and then Rich, maybe feel free to jump in. Is it actually possible to work at the speed that is required today to try and monitor the supply chain risk, right, of, a, of whatever supply chain compared to the speed that we're trying to do business at? So it is moving in the right direction. I'll put it that way, but it That's is really impossible. No. <laughs> it is impossible today in to the speed that I think Richard and those he talks to and works with want. Um, Because the fintechs taught us that if you could bring somebody on board in 16.2 seconds, then you have that much more opportunity to to make money. Mm. They didn't, but they're not looking very deep. And that's a big C model as well. And most large corporates, B2B, right? Like that's... So how are we going to do this? So I think the one thing that has helped is it's not about compute cycles. Yes, are still a problem, but they're not a problem like they were in the past. Yeah. So if I have several billion instead of just a billion pieces of information, I can crunch that now. And cloud computing is adding to that because what can happen is an individual process can engage a hundred servers instead of 10 servers. Mm. And that, and that is, is real time. So I think the compute cycle is not the problem. The problem is, while we were getting to these compute cycles, data went astronomically through the roof. The amount of information, most of it is useless, but to distill the useful out of the useless mm. and from the useless is very difficult. So where I believe what we're seeing progress in on speed is pre-digest the data into chunks right. that can then be absorbed via the cycles we have in a much more logical way. But you have to have well-governed, I'll call them insights, so that the most inefficient thing the world is doing today is every company is under sanctions restrictions. They, ha- they can't work with sanctioned entities, depending on jurisdiction, et cetera, and policy. Well, 
those sanctioned entities, everybody is doing the same thing, matching a screen, a, a name against a list every day, and everybody's doing it imperfectly. What if, and I'm look, projecting to the roadmap, so the forward, but if I take just that example, what if we could come up with the, the instead of a whole bunch of lists, how about the people and companies that you should pre-screened so that everybody is sharing effectively, not just lists at a country level, but actually the people and then the people by association, yeah, yeah. sanctioned by extension. Sort of the network rather than the just network the list. The network rather yeah. than the list. And since everybody is doing that screening every day, the amount of waste in false positives is astronomical. Yeah. If you could condense just that one activity, think about the resource that would be available to do a deeper dive on the ones that we really we don't look at because nobody's available. To, to look at the ones that we really do have in yeah. our gut, a feeling that somebody better do something. I mean, you, Richard, talk about the gut feel. Yeah, you said something else there around, I really like that idea of taking the, the vast, I'm not going to say infinite, because there, there is obviously a point where there's no more, but there's so much data, but getting it to chunks. If I ask the question, what can be captured with data? What would you say to that? Because I think the other side of that question is what can't be. And that maybe then leads us to the gut question. Well, it's uh, in our world, because we're on this side, the right, I'll call it the right side. It's what can I capture legally? Okay. Changes so quickly by jurisdiction. So that, for instance, right now, there are very few impediments to us using captured social media Mm. in, in cases where I can't believe it's going to be available in three to five years. It's just the, the whole, but on the other hand, we have this whole notion that if we're going to interdict the criminals, we've got to have sources of information. So I would suggest that there's more available than people are willing to risk consuming because of the potential privacy issues until government leadership comes, steps up and does that pre-screen for you. That, that due yeah. diligence versus data privacy button heads again. And they don't have to. I mean, if you look at most of the, particularly the EU is is, um, ahead of this game in that they're talking about giving rights to do this kind of of, um, due diligence with more data sets than are available today, but that certain of those data sets they will have control of. So registries and the like, which they have their own imperfections today, but this whole financial crime compliance is in its infancy compared to a lot of other disciplines. I mean, mean, it's, really only the last 20 years have we been doing most of of what we're doing. And so how far can we get to your question of what can we get with data? We we know we can get registries. We know we can get business information. We know we can get the people that are involved in those businesses. We know we can do sanctions. We we can get social media and other types of media. I suppose that can give you a, a view of certain risks, but then, and I suppose this comes to the gut question, right, Richard, you might do all of those checks and you go, Okay, well, I know this, 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 this. I might even know the financials of this of the company I'm trying to do business with, and I think they look good. I think they look stable. Don't think they look like they've come out of nowhere, which might smell like a sort of shell company. Even if those are all ticked, what aren't we seeing that might give someone a a strange feeling or that gut instinct that that you refer to? Yeah, and your discussion about how we interpret data reminds me of this exercise, which I thoroughly failed which was during World War II, they were analyzing bombers that were shot down 
and they were looking at where they were hit yeah. in the bullet casings to try to understand how to rebuild the planes so that they would be less subject to, to that type of um, issue. So I drew my conclusions and redesigned the plane and it was horribly wrong. So I was misinterpreting that shot data and what I would do with it. So it really does come down to how are we looking at data, right? So here, here's an example. Here's a real world example. I was doing business with a very peaceful Caribbean nation that probably its worst public safety threat were maybe some rowdy tourists on the beach, mm. right? And I get an order for, I think it was between a half a million and three quarters of a million dollars of explosive grenades for this peaceful Caribbean nation. And because they were explosive grenades, they had to be licensed by the State Department. So that license sailed through. Mm. It was approved by the State Department. The order was prepaid at full pricing, where if they would have asked for a discount, they probably would have received one. And the third party that was involved in the transaction, there was no suspicions of corruption. So is there anything wrong with that order? So it's, it's past the checklist. Right. Low, low risk country, like, you know, yeah, all filled, financials good, nothing's come up on screening, beneficial ownership was good. And yet you're saying, hmm. And think of, <laughs> think of the village that saw that order. Sales order processing, finance, manufacturing. Someone at the shipping dock probably said, I guess there's problems in this country because this is a lot of explosives going out. Mm. So I think that is a great point about all this data that we have and the complexities of it still doesn't remove that human touch to say Mm. there's something about this particular order that doesn't seem right. And I would come to find out now for me, it was one big win-win. I wasn't thinking this is capture of state resources because this country clearly doesn't need this product. Mm. And I would come to find out, I think I was reading in the economist that the outgoing defense minister of this peaceful Caribbean nation was using defense contracts that the country didn't need to pad his pension on the way out the door. Right. Right. So all of these useless orders, and I'm sure those are grenades are still there, were basically being purchased for state capture for his individual gain. So I think there is a good lesson of if something doesn't look right, even if the data supports it, it doesn't resolve us of personal responsibility and accountability to ask some questions. Well, happily. Not that that's a happy story, but happily for this conversation, this is a beautiful segue. So uh, we have this audience asks section. So I, I spoke to people that I know that listen to this podcast and they, they give me a few questions for you guys. And the first one ties very nicely into what we've just talked about. So they said, when due diligence passes, but a person is unsure, so like you've just discussed, how should that be handled? I think what they're driving at is like, what would I do as an individual, right? So it's an what we've recognized up to this point in the discussion is that someone might say data looks good, but I know, or I'm asking a nuanced, more nuanced question. What should they do next? What would the, the appropriate response be in your, your eyes, Richard? I think a lot of this goes back to Bill's discussion about culture, 
because a lot of that, what is the next step will depend on the culture of the company. So for example, if the supervisor is incentivized the same way the individual that sees the problem is, the supervisor doesn't have much of an incentive to tap the brakes and slow things down. Mm. In other organizations, the supervisor might want to be the first person to know that you see something that might look not look right. So I think it still has to be raised, but it will depend on the culture of the organization of do you raise that red flag to your supervisor or do you bring it to one of the control functions? Someone in compliance, maybe internal audit and ask the question there. But what you definitely don't want to do is stop raising the flag until you're satisfied that it's been addressed, even if the final decision isn't one that you agree with. Yeah, it's, it is a, a real, and, and you hit it on the head, Richard, of does the next, does the escalation path, I, I feel bad, I'm, I'm an investigator, whatever, and I think, man, there's really something rotten here. Is the escalation path someone who is incented to let it through, or is it incented to do the right thing and make sure that it's evaluated appropriately? I just, that wasn't in place. It used to be, they always, they, they say the business makes the decision. That's what compliance has always told. The business makes the decision. Well, that's not rational if we want to, if that, it can definitely be involved in the decision, but that's the, the, the key. And that's why that is a cultural thing. It's, it's, it's how does your incentives. culture design or help you design the market that you set up within your org? Yeah. I, I can't remember the name of the book now. It's a fantastic book about market design. Nothing about these topics, but just the idea that if you don't align incentives or the carrots and sticks, appropriately, then you have the best intention in the world, it's going to fail. So you should always think about which actors are involved in any marketplace, which all come or all commerce is, and then make sure you're getting making sure your intent lines up to how those actors are going to be um incentivized. That is a that is a great point. And just to, you know, the pillar of incentives, it speaks to what an organization really wants. Right. If you want to look at culture, look at how people are incentivized. And the way I look at it's incentives, objectives, even deadlines, it's like prescription medications, right? If we turn that bottle on its, on its side, we see all those scary side effects. So reward systems have side effects. And are we challenging ourselves as organizations and to say, look, do the side effects align with our culture? with our code so people feel that the business is speaking to them from one voice, not two. So I get very passionate when I hear the word incentives. Yeah. Uh, so we're going to change tack a little bit. The next two questions, we haven't really talked about this today, but uh, it's such a massive problem. That I'd be great to spend a few minutes on it. So we hear a lot about modern slavery, right? In the press, in there's new acts or relatively new acts legislatively in Australia and Germany and France and the US has got some stuff. The UK has had some stuff for a while. But in terms of, we've raised all this awareness, there's now this sort of like, you've got to have a policy is kind of like one of the requirements. Talk about that. The question from this audience member was like, we hear all, all of this. How many resources in the private sector? So, you know, the majority of listeners to this podcast are practitioners in compliance of some sort for, for various businesses. 
how many how many resources in the private sector are being dedicated to eradicating modern slavery? I believe the goal from uh, that Professor Zoe Trod told us is that by 2030 there is a commitment at the international level to try and eradicate it, which is you know fantastic goal. It feels like we hear so much about it though that it seems not insurmountable but big. And do you guys have any sense of like what's going on in the that's the due diligence world? I think to- that's inter- insurmountable in that time frame. I think the it's cultural in some regions it's an accepted it's an accepted consequence of economic conditions and and the only way you really solve this problem is that person who says man that's a really good price for those products are they using slaves i mean it, it's it really is something that has to be i think the governments have to do more Border controls, all of those have to be um, beefed up. But it's how many countries have a real, um, a, a real regulation? I mean, the UK was first. And Australia did it. There's more now. Germany is in. But can there. the private sector do it without the regulation? You just say we won't stand for this. We're the ones that drive That's, the global economy. I don't think the I don't think public can do it on their own. I think private sector has to say, is this being produced by slaves? Yeah. This fish, is this a slave camp that gets set up in the three months of the year and they fish for whatever it is and then they go back to their villages with hardly anything, if anything. Yeah. So it's, it's both. It's, it's got to be public-private. I know yeah. this is such a big problem because it's such a moral problem. Mm. Richard, I can see, see you nodding. I don't know if this is your area per se, but if you had a view, I'd love to hear it. Absolutely. And I think you know, to pivot on what Bill was sharing, the companies, the private sector might be doing the, the right thing here, even if it's not for purely altruistic reasons, because the reputational damage mm. of having your organization, whether it's five or six levels down the supply chain, but having slavery involved in your work, I mean, the reputational damage, people aren't reading those articles thinking, oh, well, that was, you know, a six level supplier that really wasn't their responsibility. You know, I mean, it could be lawful, but awful. And I think companies are really being driven now by wanting to stay out of the the reputational risk yeah. that having any attachment to slavery in terms of your work might have. Yeah. It's, it's a bigger topic. We have done one podcast on it, uh, the original episode, actually, way back at the start of 2022. Go check that out if you haven't and listen to Professor Zoe, whose team is dedicated to this at Rights Lab. They're doing some really interesting stuff like using satellite imagery to recognize those camps that maybe are set up or things that look odd um, environmentally, which could only be caused by, you know, sudden movement of people. Uh, So I think it almost goes back to that point. There are certain data points people can use if they're motivated to do this and do the right thing. Make sure, as you said, Richard, that even if there's no regulation, it's still awful. So do something about it. Um, but there's also that bit that you're mentioning, Bill, which is that gut again, which is if the price doesn't look right, <laughs> it, I mean, it might not yeah. be on your checklist, but you should still yeah. ask the question. We kind of touched this earlier, but because the audience members asked it, I, I want to ask it in their words. They said, what's the biggest evolution you've seen in the tools that companies can use to mitigate risk and fight back against corrupting influences? And they 
e.g. monitoring, etc. So I think you can go wherever you want. And Bill, maybe if I start with you, you talked earlier about the triangulation, expertise, data, tech, but is there a, a biggest single change that you've seen in how that's come together? I think it's just awareness that it's not possible to do it how we want it done today. So where do we have to make the changes? The changes, I believe, are not in the, yes, it's education of people, but I think we've got the people if we're using them correctly. If we're using them for make work because we have inefficient systems and they're tracking down false positives, that's massive amounts of inefficiency. If we're allowing them to be investigators and we've trained them, you know, there's organizations that now focus on training financial crime specialists, and it's a big deal. But I think to me, in 2023, 24, 25, the, the one thing we can do better is what I was talking about before. Don't give me a billion pieces of information. Give me an insight. And I don't need a specific, I'm not going to hold you to that that's the only, that's the absolute truth. But now I can look at three things. You know, I can gauge that and I can value that based on, and, and it's been done for decades in the numeric side, numbers, but on text, text is hard. Text mm. is very difficult to create um, certified risk insights unless you really know what you're doing. And that's where if we don't do that and if we don't feed 10 insights instead of 8 billion pieces of information into these growing population of really sophisticated tech and particularly with the new machine learning. I think that's the key is don't start at the goal. Start halfway up the field and all of a sudden you're going to get much more efficient, which means the people are free instead of doing minutia, they're doing real active investigations and helping law enforcement because law enforcement doesn't get involved unless they get the stuff they don't want to waste their from time. The private sector, yeah, exactly. Can I just clarify a couple of points. So, when you're talking about the new numeric side, I guess you're talking about sort of financial modeling risk, which you know we're sitting a couple of streets away from Wall Street is incredibly sophisticated, very and, sophisticated. But when we're talking about reputational risk, to Richard's point, that lives in narratives and stories, and that's what you're talking about. Yeah, talk text, about text versus numbers. Numbers yeah. have been doing it for decades, and it's it's that's the mature area I would call of due diligence, accountancy, et cetera. Yeah. When you start to pile on text and then text of unknown origin, unknown um, validity, all of a sudden your world is in a completely different place. You actually need more compute mm. powers and you need more intelligent people to, to, to figure out the anomalies. I like how when you say more intelligent people, you point towards Richard. That was quite cute. It's <laughs> a misplaced point there. But I will, you know, when you asked the question, you had me at monitoring. And we talked about before the change in the compliance and know your customer landscape. I think the days of one and done due diligence or that and forget, I think we're moving away from that. And I think there's a greater appreciation that Due diligence onboarding is just a snapshot of where that third party is at that point in time. And, you know, going back to another war story, so to speak, is I was doing business with a client in South America, no indication of corruption or even corrupt intent. And this conversation occurred when I was cooperating with the FBI 
probably the subject of another podcast. And uh, <laughs> next so it, time, <laughs> right? So it was being monitored by law enforcement, and the intermediary said and it was a friendly conversation, and I said, "We it doesn't seem like we're doing much business." And he said, "Well, we just had a new president elected here, and the old regime has been in power for quite some time." And with this new president comes a new minister of interior and minister of defense. Those were my clients. And they're going to appoint all new people in the civil service. And he said, and those are my buddies. And they know they only have four or five years to make their pension. So we're going to start doing a lot of business. So look how the change in the political landscape changed where that particular third party sort of sat on the continuum of corruption risk. So I think we really need to be aware, especially now where critical suppliers, you know, can no longer access the goods, labor, and material that they need to manufacture. We need to really take a look and monitor and stay engaged with our third parties through the life of a relationship, not just at the beginning. Yeah, I think, yeah that's a fantastic story. And I think one thing that also jumps out to me is that what you're talking about there is politically exposed persons, as we call them, or PEPs, for those that, that are unfamiliar with the, the acronym. Yeah, there's this, this idea, I think sometimes I hear people talk about sanctions and PEPs, sanctions and PEPs, PEPs and sanctions, as if it's this nothing thing. It's just this annoying thing I have to do. But when you hear a story like that, where someone's saying, oh, new PEPs are being created or appointed, or a PEP is appointing people that maybe don't meet the FADF definition, but we're going to, that, that's where we're going to go. We then start connecting PEPs with the networks that you talked about earlier, Bill, with then technology. And I know how hard teams here work and I know there are other uh, people in our ecosystem that also create pet databases who work incredibly hard to try and put this together because it's text-based. There's no, there's no numbers that everyone gets assigned. So I don't know if I'm really making a point. I'm just sort of drawing together several themes and things I see. And it's, uh, I love that story, Richard, because it actually brings it to life. And anyone that thinks, oh, peps and sanctions is an annoying thing or it's this easy thing, it's, no, it's really important because of stories like that. A um, couple more questions, and I think we're going to need to wrap up. And hopefully this one is kind of aspirational and, and is a nice question uh, in a way, because I'm not going to hold you to it. How would you like to see, and I'll stress that, I'm not saying what do you think will happen, but what would you like to see, or sorry, how would you like to see practitioners, vendors, and companies work together to solve the challenges that we're, we're facing today? in supply chain risk? Yeah, that is, that is the area right now. Because I was talking at the beginning that supply chain morphed from quality and price and reliability to 15 different angles, particularly because of the pandemic, but then the resulting um, global trade issues. Then pile on sanctions, and some people agree with the sanctions, some countries agree and some don't. So those that don't become vehicles for sanctions evasion. And so it's that whole world is now up in the air. And then you throw in an occasional earthquake and a tsunami and all of a sudden the climate's now a problem. And it's massive, the number of risks that are piling up. I'm just a, 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 a global 10 tech. And there were 10 dimensions on suppliers that they had to start to look at. You know, the ESG, the climate, cyber. Um, oh, yeah. Then there's financial crime, which was used to be the only thing they looked at. And but they didn't even look at that. It was price, slavery and um, 
you know, reliability. Yeah. Get it to me. So the world is a different place for, um, we really call it supply chain resiliency now because yeah. you can't be, you can't protect yourself if you don't know the connections between competitive suppliers and then the suppliers that supply the other suppliers. So that you're fourth, fifth, sixth parties. Now, how many more billions of pieces of information do you need? So I, I just think that the, what we're talking about here is that we can't individually, we can't just say private companies, you're going to deal with it. We've got to have partnerships across public-private partnerships and vendors have to triangulate with cu their customers and have to triangulate with the governments yeah. if we're going to try to bring some I level do, of- I do um, sometimes think that actually there's often talk about public-private partnerships and I tend to agree that, that that'd be, they're really important, but sometimes it feels like the vendor side is like left out of it. They go, right, practitioners and the regulators. It's like, well, actually, there's that missing piece in the middle, which is you can't have every company go create these controls. And the government certainly isn't going to make, well, probably isn't going to make the, the control to rule them all. So it kind of feels there should be that, that vendor representation. Absolutely. In, in you have, well, I'm assuming the vendor is bringing something so important to the equation mm. that they have to be part. You can't have the answer if you don't have the input from all. Yeah. And so I think that's the dimension that I see. Um, it's really the, just that you think the way you would like to see this happen is a better collaboration between the stakeholders just to all recognize that we all think there's the same problems. And then maybe you're not sure yet on what the exact solution is, but it does involve everyone. I, one good example is that on the data side, there's quite a few data vendors of similar types of information, be it um, entity information, be it negative information like PEPs, um, sanctions. Well, we were realizing several years ago that if we just compete and there's no basis of standards, no code of conduct between all of us that we share, automotive did this, pharmaceuticals did this, they got together and they put in place operating models. So at least you then have a starting point where the industry is aligned. Mm. And if industry gets aligned, then that means that governments are going to feel more comfortable that you're not sitting there behind the scenes trying to outdo each other. You're sure you're doing that, but that's in product and ability to sell and ability to support. That's always yeah. been the, the issue. So I think it's, it's really getting to the point where the vendors have to be more a piece of it, but they've got to work together in a dimension that they haven't before. Yeah. I know that that's happening in, in many fields and certainly in data because data is in its infancy as to how it's going to be utilized long-term for all kinds of things. Really fascinating. Thanks, Bill. Richard, totally different set of experiences to Bill. So if you think about practitioners, vendors, and the companies that they're trying to serve, how would you like to see them come together to help with not eradicating corruption, I think that's impossible. It's, there's an element of human nature in there, but mitigating the risk of it. Well, I think to, to every point that Bill just spoke about, right, is I don't think anyone carries the full burden of addressing this. And it certainly is a journey. And we are heading in the right direction in terms of transparency and cooperation 
There's some wonderful collective action organizations. There's the Marine Anti-Corruption Network out of Copenhagen that are bringing different pieces and parts of the supply chain with particularly maritime shipping together. But, you know, one thing came to mind, well, actually two things, thinking about what Bill was sharing. Number one is one of the biggest leaders in the corporate world when it came to using data uh, from an ethics and compliance and control perspective was Anheuser-Busch, ABI. And their chief ethics and compliance officer was Matt Galvin, who they, they, they gave it a name, Brew Right, right? Very appropriate. And they were really the leaders in saying, look, if you're a public company, you have data. It's there. You're using it in your financial statements. Why not use it as a vehicle to help spot fraud in the organization, be it on the client side or on the vendor side? Well, Matt just got hired by the Justice Department. Ah, okay. So think about the strength he brings to the prosecutorial bench. So if we're not taking data seriously, the Department of Justice certainly is. And I think that sent a very big message when they went ahead and hired him. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. And, and, I, and I also think something that Bill's been talking about, which is really True, and and I think even the regulatory expectation is you can't be everywhere equally, right? So, you know, if you're looking at, you know, $50 T&E expense reports, are you doing it at the cost of where there could be some deep red spots in the organization? So are you taking your, your data and are you mapping it? Are we doing the risk-based approach yeah. that intelligently to your, your org rather than just, you know, you talked about the Dutch example, uh, right. which is kind of a one-size-fits-all, which doesn't really work. It, it sort of reminds me of a, a professor, Alison Taylor. She's a professor at NYU, not far from here. She talks a lot about this in the ESG world. You said, you know, you can have 20 boxes that you have to tick with respect to your ESG initiatives. Why not pick three that you can actually change yeah, yeah. and have an impact on, right? And get rid of the checklist and, and do what you can do and do where you can have an impact. So I think that really speaks a lot to what you've been sharing, Bill, which is where are you going to put those resources and are they in the right place? And collectively, are we looking at the right places? And regulators have to give you pre- credit for it. that's, And I think that's what's changed. It's not. it's not having all the check boxes any longer. It's what did you really do? What did you impact? And I think that's helped companies. Intent matters. Intent matters. And the board is connected now to compliance in a way that they hadn't been in the past. So it's, I think that's the, um, it's all these little steps are going to make it harder to hide as a criminal. Brief before I ask the last question, Matt, Allison, if you're listening, then you're very welcome on the podcast. (laughs) <laughs> Love to do that content with you, uh, ESG and, and DOJ version of, uh, of, of this. Anyway, <laughs> last question. And perhaps if I've asked the, the slightly more optimistic one of like, what would you like to see? This is, well, this isn't necessarily negative, but maybe is there's a risk that it could be. <laughs> see how my tone is. So simply, can we win? By which I mean, can we fundamentally actually get to a more ethical world of commerce in your opinion? Richard, maybe if I start with you. And then, Bill, you can you can sort of finish off. So I, I don't think winning in the sense of 
conquering. Like we've done this, we've made it to the, to the peak of the mountain. Mm. That is, I don't, that is not possible because risk changes. Okay. And especially in this environment, there are stubborn risks that we've been dealing with for decades, as well as new and emerging risks. So the target doesn't stay still, right? The question is, are we addressing it? Are we deploying resources in a way that's thoughtful to try to tackle these challenges from financial crime, ESG, modern slavery? And I think, so it's more of, I think we're pointed in the right direction, Mm. but it's a little bit like bicycling uphill. You know, if we stop pedaling and think, okay, we, we did it, I think we're just going to immediately head back in the wrong direction. I really like that analogy, right? Bicycling up here. I'm going to steal that and use that in the future. It's Please do. Yeah. <laughs> continuous and consistent effort yeah. is what you're going to have to do. But Bill, what, what about you? Can, can we get to a better place than we, we are? are in? We're actually in a better place. It's just that the volume of global enterprise, commercial activity has with all of the developing regions becoming less developing and more contributing, um, there's just more opportunity. So I, I'm looking positively to the future in, for a couple of reasons. One is organizations like the EU Commission and others and their directives on anti-money laundering. You know, it used to be so general. It was like, I could check that box. If I did nothing and, and then it got more and more and more. And by the time they got to the fifth and sixth directive, they're saying, these are the 22 offenses that if we could eliminate money laundering, they would disappear. And that because the money has to be cleaned for that activity. So human slavery, bribery, all of these, all the corruption that gives me faith that the why is and the how is so much better understood than we had just 10 years ago. Yeah. And that, so when I say it gets harder to hide, that's what we're progressing. At. We are not, have not slowed the dollar amount because there's so many more dollars floating around. Mm. On the other hand, I believe, I really do believe now, and there's been many estimates that we've slowed the rate of growth of money that's laundered. And I'm taking every kind of vehicle of those 22 predicate offenses. So, yeah, yeah. so I'm, I'm feeling encouraged that way, but to Richard's point, it's whether you're bicycling up or pushing a boulder up or whatever it is, there is no way you're getting to the top of that thing so that there's zero human nature is always going to be there. Yeah. But I'd like to make it less egregious. You know, if you could get rid of some of those predicate offenses that, you know, the bribery, the corruption, the human trafficking and uh, wildlife trafficking, if we could be selective morally, I think that will go a long way because that breeds culture. An organization who doesn't want to face reputational harm will declare. And when some, when these, when a bunch of you know global two thousand companies declare they want to go after something, it'll happen. Yeah, with or without government participation. Well, fantastic note to uh, sort of finish my questions on there, or the answer to my questions on. Last thing we always do is. Is recommended resources. I hope people that are listening have, have learned, you know, at least one thing, if not more. I've certainly learned several. Richard, if somebody wanted to go 
bit further into learning about corruption risk, third-party risk. Are there any resources you'd point them to, whether they be yours or, or, or others? Uh, I do. And I would encourage uh, anyone who's listening to uh, contact me through my website or my email address, which is pretty easy, richard at richardbistrong.com. And uh, whether it's a paper on third-party risk or I, I'm a, I love reading about ethics and compliance, especially books that are not about ethics and compliance <laughs> and what lessons we might take. Yeah. So I do have a, a PDF of book reviews. Oh, nice. In case you don't have time to read the full works, I'm happy to send those out. Yeah, yeah. Please do. Please send us a link and we'll, we'll send people to your site so they can download it. Terrific. And it'd be a pleasure to stay connected with everyone. Bill, anything you'd point people towards to learn yeah, a bit more? I, I do want to, um, the one thing I've read religiously for, ever since they started, it was FCPA blog, because it's not about, it's all about corruption generally. And that has grown up with the industry and to just where they were and, and where they are now. But I also think that the maturity of the industry groups, the ACAMs, the ACFCS, where like ACFCS, that's financial crime specialist. Mm. And, and in ACAMs, it's, it's, it's money laundering. That's teaching a skill. That's the kind of people that are being minted that we're sticking them on a desk and telling him to go through mind-boggling amounts of, of false positives. That's what I want to eliminate because it's demotivating. I've seen it so many times. Yeah. So I think those the, the industry organizations conferences, certifications, if you're really into this stuff and you're going to have, you're going to be touching data science, you're going to be touching data management. It's, it's really a broad area. Mm. It's not just what it was trying to, to, uh, well, maybe to make sure maybe, somebody was certified. Maybe listeners can start with the blog and then there, exactly. they can find, find well, the next Well, we didn't rehearse this, but I'm a contributing editor to the FCPA blog. So I'll, I'll double You'll down say, and I've, thank you for that endorsement. That. Yeah. Oh, there we go. There I've read go. many of them. You're very, very kind. Good. Well, uh, Bill Rich just left me to say thank you so much for making the trip to New York and, and joining me here. I um, really, really enjoyed the conversation. And if people have listened to this, they've got a topic, a story, something they want to come on and discuss, please, please let me know. And as Richard said, please reach out to him on LinkedIn. I know you're very active there. And yeah, that's how we originally got in touch a few years ago. So um, yeah, thank you very much, guys. And I uh, appreciate your time. Thanks, Alex. Thanks, Bill. Thanks, Alex. Wow. That conversation went pretty wide, but it was fascinating to hear the insights and stories from Bill and Richard. The big themes I think I'll be reflecting on after that are what Bill was saying about the triangulation needed of expertise, data and technology. You know, how do we take that forward? And sort of particularly on what Richard was talking about, how culture impacts the strategy, it impacts the processes, and ultimately it affects how people deal with red flags when they emerge. You know, who do they go to? Who's incentivized to to actually help them deal with it? And finally, as a, a sort of theme, is many companies might start with great intent and they need to do that. It always starts with intent, but they also need to think about market design, about human nature, and also recognize that they're going to have to have courage and patience as prerequisites to do to do him well whilst doing the right thing. I just want to say a quick thank you to audience members that sent in questions for me to ask our guest today. It always makes for, for interesting parts of the conversation. 
And if you have an idea for an episode or just a question for a guest, then connect with me on LinkedIn and let me know. Thank you for listening. And a big thanks again to Richard and Bill for making the trip today to Moody's HQ. And as always, thanks to producers Caroline Waters, Shem Pennant and Mark Rundle. for listening to this Moody's Talks podcast. To find out more about the topics discussed, please follow the links in the show notes. You can check out other Moody's Talks podcasts by visiting moody's.com slash podcasts.